Good evening, everyone. Welcome. Glad that you are here this evening. We are continuing our study in memorable verses of the Bible as we think about verses that many people have memorized. And tonight we look at probably what are the two best known verses in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And just out of curiosity, how many have committed Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 to memory? Would you raise your hand? Yeah, a lot of you, a lot of you. It's a very comforting portion of Scripture. It's an encouraging portion of God's Word. So we want to reflect upon it tonight. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 reads, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. The model of my high school was exceedingly secular. It was a public school. And the motto was, <coughs> in ourselves, our future lies. In ourselves, our future lies. Now, that is not an uncommon thought in the secular world, that our future is governed by our choices, governed by our hard work, uh, whatever you want to be, you can be if you put your mind to it, uh, that we are the captains of our fate, as it were, that everything is under our control and disposal, and so your future is up to you. It's what you are going to make of it. Well, that really is a very secular thought. It takes God out of the picture, but we know that the Scripture teaches us that Man plans his way, but it's ordered by the Lord. Uh, many are the plans that people have that fall through, that uh, do not materialize. And uh, beyond that, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And so many times we limit ourselves in thinking what can be done or how we can be used. So instead of our thought of in ourselves our future lies... Our passage teaches us that our future is, in fact, in the hand of God. Our passage has a vastly different take on life. Rather than to rely upon ourselves, we're to rely upon God. We can have confidence in the future because we have confidence in God. There's a great promise in the verse that we are going to consider this evening, and that's found in verse 6. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. He will make your paths straight. So as we look at these verses tonight, we begin with the exhortation, and the exhortation is to trust in God. First, the exhortation is to trust. Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord. To trust is to place our hope or confidence in someone or something. Trust is active reliance upon another. Trust is not a feeling, it's a volitional choice. It is the giving ourselves over to the advice, the counsel, following through on what others would tell us to do or actively seeking their help. It's not a, an emotion, it's, it's not a simply thought process but it's an actual entrusting ourselves to, to another. Thus, trust is active dependence and obedience. It is doing what God says that we are to do, trusting in his wisdom, trusting in his power, trusting in his ability uh, to make our paths straight. So trust is relinquishing control. It's giving ourselves over in this instance, to God, rather than maintaining the control over our own lives. I have illustrated in trust exercises. I imagine many of you have been in some kind of situation, whether it be in school or at a camp or someplace where they are teaching you to have trust in your teammates, uh, trust in others, and one common uh, example of that is to have two people, one standing in front of the other, with the person that is behind 
the first person uh, catching that person as they just lean back and let themselves fall, believing that the person behind them is going to catch them, to trust, to put your fate into their hands. Well, that's what we are asked to do. We are to turn our lives over and entrust them to God's care, and in particular, his leading and direction and wisdom. So the exhortation is to trust in God, Proverbs 33, 5. Trust in the Lord. He is the object of our trust. Jehovah is to be the object of our hope or confidence. He is the one in whom we are to trust. We are to trust in a personal God and not merely a code of ethics. So it's more than just trusting in a formula, if you will, uh, that so many people view the word of God as simply filled with a lot of principles, and uh, we are simply following God's principles in doing his will. But the emphasis is not just in following a code of ethics. It's, it's not just following a method, if you will, of how life is to be lived, but it's actually trusting in a person. It's trusting in a God who, yes, gave us that word, but upholds that word, but brings that word to pass, that is with us constantly, that can oversee, can direct a God who is omnipotent, a God is omniscient, etc. So it's about trusting in the God of his word. And then C, the exhortation is to trust in God wholeheartedly. That is exclusively or completely. Trust the Lord with all your heart. We're not to have a plan B in case we do not like plan A. All right? We're, we're, we're not to um, hedge our bets, as it were. Number two, we're not to be a people who are hedging our bets or diversifying our spiritual portfolio. I use that because most of us are aware that in investment planning, uh, when you have a portfolio, you are encouraged uh, not to place all of your monies in one particular area, not to invest solely in stocks or solely in treasuries or have it all in cash, but you're to diversify. Why? Because you don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't know what the return of your investment is going to be. You don't know if the stock market's going to go up or going to go down. You don't know what the treasury rate's going to be two years from now. So you hedge your bets, meaning that you put a little into a variety of things, hoping that eventually it all works out well. But you're foolish if you put it all in one place. Later, I talk about the fact of uh, putting your eggs in one basket. If you think about all of the catchphrases, you will realize that we are just taught that we need to be diversified in the things that we put our faith or trust or confidence in. And we see that not only in the secular world, but we see it in the religious world as well. The... the Christian faith is pretty unique in being monotheistic, that is, in believing in one God. There's only one true and living God. Uh, most religions, whether they be pantheists or, or whether they, they be uh, just pluralists in terms of worshiping God, uh, they have many gods. Certainly, we think of Greek mythology, had a lot of gods. There was a god of thunder, there was a god of rain, there was a god of fertility. There were all these gods that you were to put your faith or, or trust in. And if one god failed you, uh, another god would come along and pick you up. But we're not to have a plethora of gods. We're not to have a lot of spiritual beings in which we are placing our trust and confidence. But <coughs> we're trust. <coughs> we're to trust in the true and living God as opposed to a host of idols. Number three, trust in God is not to be mitigated by additional trust in someone or something else. So Matthew 6.24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. You can't be trusting 
in God and money at the same time. And so the Christian influence is seen in our nation by the motto that is placed on our currency, in God we trust, in God we trust. There is to be this reminder as we hand our currency over that ultimately our trust is in God. But I would submit to you that most people that are handling their currency, that is far from them. They are not trusting in God. They are trusting in their bank account. They are trusting in their portfolio. They are trusting in their investments. They are believing that they're going to have enough for retirement. They're believing that if there, something untoward happens, you have to go to the hospital. We've got insurance. We've got all these things. I'm not against insurance. I'm not against retirement. I'm not against money. But I am saying to you that our ultimate confidence and trust has to be in the person of God, in the person of God. And if it's not, you will find conflict. You will find that there are going to be times in which you have to make choices that sometimes don't seem to make sense. All right? And, you know, one of the very practical choices that Christians make is about tithing. Whether or not you're going to give a tenth of your, your money to the Lord's work or, or you're not. And if your thought is, I just can't afford it, it is just too much. You don't understand my circumstances. You don't understand my situation. I don't want to be harsh and I don't want to sound insensitive, but the reality is it's a volitional choice. All right? It's on the one hand saying, well, I just can't do it, when on the other hand, God tells us that that's what we are to do. So, you know, you've got to make a choice at that point of saying, well, am I, am I going to obey God or... Or not. And so we have to make conscious choices about what it means to trust in God. Four, we are not to trust in any other entity for our well-being. Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And we certainly find in the Old Testament and as we study kings, and in the passage that we're going to be in the next week, actually, and we, we find this dilemma of, are they going to place their faith and trust in a God who is going to deliver and watch over and protect them? Or are they going to actually spend their monies to purchase horses and chariots and the safety that comes from foreign mercenaries? Isaiah 31.1 says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. And rely on horses, who trust in chariots, because they are many, and in horsemen, because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel, or consult the Lord. So they have chosen to put their trust in the chariots and the armies, rather than putting their, their trust and confidence in the Lord. That is to obey Him, that is to worship Him, that is to serve Him. So five, we are to trust in a God who upholds his word and can be counted upon to fulfill his promises. Going on with Isaiah, it states, the Egyptians are man, not God. These people that you are trusting in, these people that have the chariots, have the horses, the people that are going to be defending you, they're men, they're not God. And their horses are flesh. And not spirit. They have limitations. They are not able to do what God can do. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper, that is the ones that they are looking to for help, that is the Egyptians, that is their chariots, that is their horses, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they'll perish together. So not only will the Israelites be defeated if they're looking through these foreign mercenaries for help, but they'll all be defeated together. Six. We're to place all of our eggs in one basket, trust in God alone. Which, again, stands in opposition to all that our culture tells us to do. And then I have here, you can't take God for a test drive. You can't take God for a test drive. And the reason I say that is there's a, a popular theology that encourages people to try God. Try God. Um, 
decide to live in accordance with the word of God for a period of time and, and just see if it doesn't work out. Just, just recognize after a month of trying to do what God would have you to do, how much richer, how much better your life is. So put your God to the test. Well, that's not at all what the scripture is talking about when it's trusting in God. You don't take God for a test drive. You, you don't just see if, if God is up to the task, if, if you know, after a, a month I'm gonna evaluate whether or not uh, God is serving me the way I want and whether or not all the sacrifices I made are worth it, etc. That's certainly not trusting in God with all your heart. That is not giving yourself over to him and simply doing what he would have you to do. And then nine, in context, we're to trust in God as opposed to trusting in ourselves. That is the primary application in uh, Proverbs chapter three. Number two, the exhortation is to trust in God's wisdom and not to rely upon our wisdom. We are not to rely upon our own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your understanding. To lean is to rest upon. It's to find help, support, and place confidence in another. Uh, I lean on my cane when I, when I walk. I have problems with uh, my balance. And as a result, when, when I walk, uh, many times, if I'm not walking too far, I'm, I'm just fine. But if I'm on uneven ground, if I stumble, if something happens, I have difficulty catching myself. And so I have my cane there to catch me if I need it. But there are other times, such as going up steps, if I don't have a railing, I actually lean on that cane. I push off from it, right? And I have a difficulty going up steps if I don't have a, have a cane or something to, to grab onto to put some of my weight upon in order to thrust me forward. Well, we are not to be leaning on, relying upon our own understanding, of which uh, I will say more in just a moment. But our wisdom is not to trump God's word. Understanding, as it is used in our passage, is discernment. It's the ability to decide and distinguish between various points of view and courses of action. In other words, we are not to evaluate God's word and weigh it against our understanding, our perception, our view of life. We're not to look at God's word and then say, well, now what do I think about that? How do I feel about that? Is that a, a, a good suggestion or is that not so good? Is that, is that going to really work out in my favor or is that going to be a problem? Okay, so back to the aspect of tithing. Well, you know, I mean, the Bible says I should tithe, but you know, I, I'm in debt already and I have these other issues. And, and so, you know, in my particular circumstance, what should I do? Okay. We are not to weigh God's word against our own perception of how things are going to work out. Proverbs 3 7 says, which is right in the immediate context, be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. The evil in this instance is a failure to trust in God. It's a failure to believe his, his word. It's believing that you know better, wise in your own eyes, that you have confidence in yourself more than you have confidence in God's word. You believe that you know better. And so you can stand in judgment over God's word. You can make a rational decision as to whether or not it is to be followed and obeyed or whether in your situation it's better that you don't. Proverbs 26, 12 says, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Proverbs, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 5, 20 and 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes 
and shrewd in their own sight. All right, that they know better. That what God says is good is actually evil. And while you may think that who in the world is going to say that, well, everything from child rearing uh, to the aspect of disciplining your children, well, if you are going to say no to your child, if you're going to deprive your child of something, then they're going to be very unhappy. And if they're going to be very unhappy, then you know, the next thing they're going to be involved in drugs and, or they're going to run away and they're not going to be a part of the family. And So, you know, you, you just can't really, you know, discipline your your children, but try to just win them over by uh, giving them everything they want and placating them, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I hear amazing things that come out of the mouths of Christians. And uh, a lot of it has to do with what the Bible teaches about who God is and how God acts. And uh, I can't tell you how many people, when they first hear about the doctrine of election, say, well, that's not fair. That's not right. <laughs> that's not what I would do. Uh, therefore, God can't do that. Or I've had people be so brazen as to say, I cannot serve or worship a God like that. That should send a shiver down your spine to think that someone would say, I can't serve a God. I, I can't serve a God who declares how he acts and it doesn't fit my paradigm of how he should act. It doesn't fit my paradigm of, of what is fair or right or good. Therefore, I'm going to reject it. Uh, I can't tell you when it comes to doctrine how often people base it on whether or not they like what they hear or it agrees with their own ideas or their own thoughts. Uh, people are not disciplined to just look at the scriptures and say, what does the Bible say? But whatever it says is what I'm going to believe. And I'm going to alter my belief based on what God's word says. That takes a lot of discipline. It takes a lot of humility. But... In reality, it really shouldn't. I mean, we, who are we to stand in judgment of God? Jeremiah 9, 23 and following says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. God is just. God is righteous. God is holy. God does what is right. And so if I think that what God is doing is not right, the problem is with me and not with God. It took me a while to understand. You have to know that I'm a product of my age and didn't have computers growing up. And so it took me a while to move beyond getting frustrated with this dumb computer that keeps making these mistakes and realize that it's not the computer that's making the mistake, I'm making the mistake, I'm not entering it right, I'm not doing what it is. It's not gonna have the problem, I have the problem. So rather than blaming the computer, I need to look at what I've done, uh, what mistakes I have made. It's a, poor, it's a poor analogy because a computer is not God. But I tell you that whatever God does, it's the right thing. It's the right thing. It's just and holy and it's good. And I don't stand in a place in which I can challenge that. I may not appreciate it at the moment, but even that, I should say, why don't I appreciate it? What am I missing here? <laughs> why don't I see what is good and right and just and holy about this? So I need to pray about it. I need to submit to what God's word teaches.
So number one, we're to guard against jumping to conclusions as to what the result will be in following God's commands. You know, so many people believe that if they, if they do what God's word says, then it's just going to be a catastrophe. Okay? So back to, and I really wasn't going to be talking about tithing all that much, but I started down that road, so let me just finish that road. I mean, the idea is that it's easy to say, if I tithe, then I'm not going to have anything. It just, you know, then, then my life's going to fall apart. I'm not going to have food on the table. I'm not going to be able to provide for my family. If I do what God's word says, man, are things going to be terrible? See, the trust is in believing that if I do what God's word says, it will turn out just fine, as opposed to it's going to be absolute chaos. So number two, we must not rely upon our own ability to discern outcomes, but rather by faith trust God for the outcome of choices made in keeping with his word. To believe that if I follow God's word, he will watch over, he will protect, he will provide, all will go well. I don't need to come up with these scenarios in which trusting in God's word is going to result in misery, heartache, and chaos. Number three, this verse does not teach us that we as Christians must put our minds in neutral, nor does it mean that God does not intend us to use our own common sense and good judgment. What it does mean is that we're not to jump to the conclusion that somehow our life will be worse for obeying God, or conversely, that our life will be better by disobeying God. That life will not be better by disobeying God, and that life will be worse by obeying God. One of the sad state of affairs is that sometimes young people don't want to put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior because they're afraid they're going to miss out on life. The good things. The sin. You know, if I give my life to the Lord now, then that means I'm going to live a certain life and, and this other life looks pretty good to me. Well... Ask people that have lived that other life. You find out it's not so good. Scripture says there's pleasure and sin for a season. Yeah, for a little while, but man, when you start experiencing the consequences, when you, when you start to experience the difficulties that are associated with it, you soon find out that it wasn't the greatest path to walk down. That's about trust. That's about believing in my reasoning skills or Believing in the word of God. Our wisdom is not to supplant God's word. Which simply means to make it in place of God's word. It's not uncommon to read commentaries that just outright deny the aspect of a miracle that the Red Sea could have never been parted. Jesus never walked on water. That is just unthinkable. That's unreasonable. We all know better than that. Uh, and so there's this ipso facto rejection of what God's word says because we know it can't be true. We know better than that. But the problem is we don't know better than that. Number six, our wisdom is not to stand in judgment over God's word. We are not to pick and choose based on what we think is right or wrong, what we think is actual scripture or not scripture. A lot of time is spent by theologians uh, going through the New Testament stories about Christ trying to discern what is true and what isn't true, what took place, what didn't take place, what did Jesus say, and what was a, a sign to him that he did not really say. Uh, that is a pernicious approach to the scripture, and it's far from what our text is talking about. Number three, we're exhorted to keep God in mind in all of life's circumstances and events. 
We're to keep in mind the God who we are to trust. For it says in verse 6, In all your ways acknowledge him. To acknowledge him is literally to know him. We're to keep the person of God in mind. All right? We, we are to reflect on who God is. All that we know about God. And quite simply, three things. First, God is able to do what he wills. We always need to keep that in mind. God is able to do what he wills. God has the power. God has the authority. God has the might. He is able to do what he chooses to do. Secondly, God is good in what he wills or desires for us. So the constant reminder is God is good. God is good in his mercy. God is good in his providence. God is good in his care for our well-being. He gives us truly what we stand in need of. It is the goodness of God that prompts his actions. We are to believe that in everything that God does, he is good. Not evil. Not evil. That what he is doing is the best thing that is to be done. And if I want to put forth an alternative of what should be done, I am rejecting the goodness of God. I'm saying there is a better way. Which brings us to see God is wise in what he wills. Not only is God able, and not only is God good, but he's wise enough to know what is good. He's wise enough to know what is to be done. He's wise enough to advise us about how we should live and what is going to be the outcome of such choices. So God is wise. God knows how to bring about his desired uh, end. God knows what he must do to bring about the best in us and for us. So that involves disciplining us. That involves chasing us. That involves bringing affliction into our lives. All intended for our good. All intended for our well-being. All intended for drawing us closer to God. All intended to make us more like the image of Lord Jesus Christ. All intended to make us more compassionate and caring for others to help them in similar circumstances. God is good in whatever you are facing tonight. And we are called upon to trust him that he is able, that he is good, and that he is wise. Number three, in keeping in mind, we remember that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Uh, I was contemplating at one point of just doing a series on the many, many, many places that the scripture talks about the fact that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. It just reminds us of that repeatedly throughout the scriptures. I will lift up mine eyes into the hills. From whence cometh my help? My help comes from the Lord who created the heavens and the earth. To be reminded that the one to whom you are looking is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Of all the evils in the world today, of all the pernicious teaching, of all the wrong doctrine, in my estimation, the greatest insult to God and the greatest harm humanity is in our generation the questioning of whether God is the creator or not. Or that certainly has a different perspective on life if you understand that he is the creator. Einstein said that he was an agnostic saying he did not know whether there was a God or not, but he did say that life doesn't make much sense without a God, but he then goes on to say, but the idea or the thought of a God is repulsive to me. 
For Einstein knew that if there was a God, then he was responsible to that God. That that God would rule over him. And that he would be bound to serve that God. And it's an emotional response. It's not a scientific response. It's not that I don't know that it's true. I don't want it to be true. I don't want it to be true. Well, God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And he reminds us of it time and time again. Isaiah 29, 16 says, You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding. This idea to to question God and believing that it was an impersonal force or matter or what have you that is ultimately the source of life without any real causation. I mean, it really is ludicrous. You have heard me say it before, but I'm going to say it again because I want everyone to continually keep it in mind because so often the non-believer says to the believer and thinks that they have the greatest question on earth with who made God, where did God come from? Because God is eternal, God is self-existent. God always was, is, and will be. He is the self-existent one. That is the whole idea of the burning bush. When God appears to Moses, he appears as a flame, but the bush is not consumed, for he is not dependent upon the bush for the existence. God is not dependent upon anyone for existence. He created himself. Excuse me. He didn't create himself. He always existed. He always existed. I would just remind you that you have one or two choices. Either God always existed, or science tells us matter cannot be created or destroyed. You know what that is? That's a statement of eternality. That's a statement of eternality. Matter cannot be created or destroyed. You all heard it. You all know it. That is what is understood as the foundational truth of science in our age. Matter cannot be created or destroyed. Those are your choices. Either an eternal God or an eternal matter. God explains where everything else comes from. Matter does not explain where life comes from. For science also says that life cannot come from that which is not living. I mean, there are so many contradictions. People talk about the contradictions of the scripture. Well, think about the contradictions of science for a moment. But my point tonight is not to be a science lecture. My point is to to trust in God. But to reflect upon God as the creator is very helpful in giving us a perspective on our need to trust him. Job in all that he is going through. In Job chapter 38, verse 2, God confronts Job and asks these questions. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? For Job is starting to question God. Dress for action like a man. I will question you. This is God to Job. And you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined the measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? And that goes on for two chapters. Two chapters of God drilling Job as to what Job does not know, that the Creator does know. Does know. I find it to be a very helpful 
spiritual exercise to read and reread books about the attributes of God, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his immutability, and on and on and on. Or it is just so helpful to constantly reflect and remind myself of who God is, of how different he is from us, how he doesn't share our limitations. He doesn't have our weaknesses. He is totally other than we are. And to reflect on that. And two books, you know, one uh, at a much more uh, obtainable and easily understand level is uh, A.W. Pink's book on gleanings on the Godhead in which he deals with the attributes of God. And then there's just this wonderful work that is done by a Puritan, Stephen Sharnock, and it's entitled The Existence and the Attributes of God, but it's tough reading. But they just came out this year with uh, that two-volume work in modern English, which helps a lot, but still the concepts are pretty deep. And it's a hundred bucks for the two volumes, so it's not cheap. But I, I'll tell you, it's really worthwhile because it's asking us, when it says in all your ways acknowledge him, just stop and think about who God is. What God is like. As you are tempted to compare your understanding with God's, to stand in judgment of who God is, just remember He's the creator, and we're the creature. That says it in one line, but that can be unpacked in many different ways. Next, in every decision in life, we're to take God into account. In all your ways, acknowledge him. So number one, we must avoid only thinking of God in the big decisions. We must avoid only thinking of God in the time of the difficult decisions. We must realize how all decisions in life are in fact spiritual decisions. There is an expression that some decisions are a no-brainer. You don't have to think about it, all right? The, the answer is obvious. Four, there is an expression, uh, so that five, there are no decisions which are a no-godder. Uh, I don't even know how to spell that since it's not a word, but um, the idea is there's, there's no situation in which you don't need to think about what does God say about this? Illustrated in the life of Nathan the prophet. And uh, you know the story of Nathan. How David expresses a desire to build the temple. And Nathan says, well, that's a great idea. Sure, go for it. Yeah, God would be really happy with that. And Nathan goes home and all of a sudden has a revelation from God that that's not at all God's plan. He doesn't want David to build the temple. Solomon's going to build the temple. And Nathan has to go back and retract his thoughts and his ways because he just assumed, why wouldn't God want David to build a temple? It was a no-brainer. But it was wrong. Then, of course, we have the incident of Joshua and his men, the inhabitants of Gibeon. I think most of you know that story of how here were people that lived very close by and were to be destroyed and they pretended to be people from a faraway journey. They dressed in worn out clothes, worn out sandals, uh, food that was uh, stale, uh, wineskins that, that looked hideous. They appeared to be people that had traveled a long way and the scripture says they did not consult God. They just looked at all of the outward presentations and believed that these people were from a faraway country and made a covenant with them that they were not to make because they did not consult God. Not consult God. We need to be careful that we think that we don't need to ask God about the decisions we make. It's obvious. Well, what might be obvious to us may not be actually 
the right way to go. And then lastly, illustrating the Battle of Jericho. Leaning onto your own understanding. To me, the greatest miracle in the Battle of Jericho is not the walls falling flat, it's the people walking around it for seven days. That they actually obeyed, that they actually did what God told them to do. Now, I think in the wisdom of God, when it says that they were not allowed to speak as they marched around, I think that was God just watching over and protecting them so they're not grumbling and complaining and somebody's turning to somebody else and says, you know, this is pretty stupid. You mean we're gonna walk around these walls for, for seven days and at the seventh day, these walls are gonna fall flat? Now really, does that make a lot of sense? And of course, there are many today that would reject that and say, well, that can't happen. That, that's... But I'm telling you, here were people that were alive at that time who actually did it. They're not reading about a story and asking whether or not you believe it. They are marching around walls for seven days, believing that on the seventh day, those walls are going to fall flat, and they do. They do. Put yourself in the shoes. What would your response have been? How would you have reacted when Moses said, we're going to march around this city seven times, these huge walls, and we're going to just shout, and they're just going to fall flat. Well, we do know that when they get to the promised land, when they are to go in and take the territory that they send out 12 tribes and uh, they would send out spies representing the 12 tribes of Israel and 10 come back with a negative report, two come back and say, let's go for it. And the people say, well, the Anakim, they're too large, we can't defeat it. Man, the walls fall flat, but these people are too big for us to take on. It's amazing how life is filled with inconsistency. And may we guard against the inconsistency in our own lives. There are times in in which our faith rises to the occasion. There are times in which we really do trust God and believe his word and act in due diligence and obedience. And then there are other times we doubt, we fear, we tremble, and we stand aghast at what God would have us to do. So the exhortation is real and makes sense. Let me look at the last statement, the effects of trusting in God's wisdom and not our own wisdom. He will make your path straight. The path is straight and we are not to deviate from it. We're not to turn to the right or to the left, Joshua 1.7. Only be strong, very courageous, be careful to do according to the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. Following God's word is seen as being on a path. God, God is leading us through his word, just as God led the children of Israel by the cloudy pillar by day, the fiery pillar by night. God is leading us by his word. God is telling us the way to go. And when we depart from his word, we're deviating either to the left or to the right. We're swerving. God will keep you from wandering aimlessly. Joshua 1.7 Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from his right or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all according to that it is written. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. And then this profound statement that's found in the book of Deuteronomy that I absolutely love. 
Deuteronomy 1, 2, and 3. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given them in commandment. They wandered for 40 years and 11 months. They wandered around in circles because they failed to trust God. And what should have been an 11-day journey, their shortcut in believing that they knew better resulted in 40 years and 11 months of wandering. Failure to follow God's word and to trust in him leads to a wasted life. It leads to wandering aimlessly. It leads to setting your own course, only to find that you need to backtrack. It's a life of regret. It's a life of waste. It's a life of misery. It's a life of hardship. It's a life of difficulty. But if you follow his word, he says, I will make the path straight. King James says, I will direct your paths. The idea is that he will prosper. He will achieve what he says he will do. It is simple in that we are just asked, don't turn to the left or don't turn to the right. Don't leave the path. Don't forsake God's word. Don't stand in judgment over what God tells you to do. But simply do it. And he will lead you directly to the promised land. He will bless your way. Our Father, thank you for your word. Help us to trust in you. Uh, we pray for the day camp meeting that is to, uh, excuse me, the uh, meeting that is to follow. Uh, I trust that uh, you would bless. And uh, we thank you for your word. Help us uh, to believe it. Help us to obey it. Lord, give us hearts of trust. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and we are dismissed.